So if you could all please, together with me, uh, welcome him to the stage, Tim Vandermeer. Thank you. That's very kind. Um, trying, to, trying to see you all. It's, it's great to be with those of you I can see, um, and those of you I can't see, it's good to be with you as well. Um, before we dig into God's Word together, let me just ask you a favor. If you would join with me and pray once again and ask for God's Spirit. I so appreciate the spirit of your prayer, Dan. Let's unite our hearts again. God of heaven, we need you. God of heaven, we want you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you might come. In a fresh way, we know that you live in us because we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We pray that you might tune our ears to hear your voice. God of heaven, we pray that you might speak and that we might hear and that we might be changed. God, we're broken and we're stuck. And we ask in your grace and your mercy that you might unstick us that you might give us a fresh vision of your beauty and your goodness, that our hearts might be compelled to draw near you. God, this is a tall request, but you are good and you are gracious. And in the name of Jesus, we ask that you might show us yourself afresh today, that we might repent, believe, obey, and find our joy in you. Amen. Well, in college, I majored in engineering, and it was, a, it was a pretty rigorous curriculum. It didn't leave much time for social life. So, not that I was going to have a great social life anyway, but it was pretty paltry. And at this school that we went to, part of, part of the engineering curriculum, I still to this day don't know why, we were required to take four semesters of humanities. And the humanities department at our school had this notorious reputation for these massive reading lists. And so my sophomore year, I get the syllabus for my humanities course, and I look at it, and I'm like, whatever social life I had, it's gone. It's over. There's, I, you know, just surrender to the books. And then, and then, one day in the library, I saw it. Fifteen scarlet-bound volumes of beauty. Master plots, encyclopedia. Every major literary work condensed to one and one-half pages, and my social life was resurrected. It was a glorious thing. Well, if Jonah had made it to master plots, which it didn't, but if Jonah had made it to master plots, the plot summary of the book of Jonah would have been something like this. The worst prophet ever goes to the wickedest city ever, preaches the worst sermon ever, and experiences the greatest revival ever. That's a summary of the book of Jonah. The worst prophet ever goes to the wickedest city ever, preaches the worst sermon ever, and experiences the greatest revival ever. Now, why would someone want to record a story like this? What do you think the intention of the author was when he wrote this story? Maybe his intention was to show us that God is sovereign and he can redeem no matter what. That might be part of it. Maybe it was to give hope to preachers like me who are broken and feeble and say, despite your brokenness and your feebleness, God can work. Uh, maybe, probably not, that probably wasn't. He wrote to, to ancient Israel. That was his audience. And I think the purpose of Jonah, his overarching purpose, 
was to convict Israel of their hard-heartedness. To say, listen, Nineveh, that wicked, wicked city, got a preacher like Jonah, got a prophet like Jonah, and they repented. And you have the likes of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos, and you refuse to repent. This is exactly how Jesus uses Jonah, the story of Jonah. Look with me, Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. This is what it says. The men of Nineveh, this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us Jesus' you know, voice inflections and tonality and all that kind of stuff. But I kind of wonder if Jesus might have said it's something like this. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Jonah! I mean, they had Jonah and they repented, and now you have the greatest of all prophets and you refuse to repent. Part of the purpose of the book of Jonah is to just show us that Jonah is this anti-prophet. He is everything a prophet should not be. But there's so much we can learn from his, from, from his sin and from his weakness, but only if we can understand and contrast it to what a true righteous prophet is to look like. And so this morning, before we get to the three verses I'm preaching on, we're going to spend the bulk of our time actually looking at the Old Testament prophets and to see what their message and their mission was so that we can use that as a backdrop to put Jonah up against and maybe learn from him and his failings. All right, so the Old Testament prophets. The, the, Old Test the primary mission of the Old Testament prophets was a mission of reconciliation. The singular most important task of the prophet was reconciliation. Their goal was to reconcile God with man and man with God. That was the heart of the prophets. Primary example of that is Moses, one of the greatest Old Testament prophets. You remember the story. Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law of God, and while he's up there, he's up there a good long time, the people get reckless. They get reckless and restless, both, and they make a golden calf, and they start this wild revelry, revelry worshiping the golden calf. In fact, they call the golden calf Yahweh, and they're worshiping this. While this is going on, the Lord says this to Moses, Exodus chapter 32, verse 29. He says, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by yourself. I will make you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Verse 14, then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So Moses goes down to where all this partying is going on, all this wild, idolatrous revelry, and he brings order to the camp. 
And then we read this in Exodus 32, verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The people of Israel rebel against God, and God says to Moses, Moses, I'm going to start over with you. I'm going to make you greater than Father Abraham. Wow. What an honor God is bestowing on Moses. And Moses says, God, no, I care more about your honor and your glory than about my honor and my glory. And this is going to make you look bad if you do this, God. It's going to make make it look like you went back on your promises. God, I am far more concerned with your glory than my glory. Please don't do it. And the King James Version says the Lord repented of the evil he was about to do. Then Moses goes down, brings order, and goes back up to God and says, God, I know these people have sinned. Please forgive them. But if you require someone to pay for their sin, then let it be me. I would rather die than than see them separated from you. I would give up my life that they might be reconciled with you. Wow. That's the heart of the prophet. The prophet would rather die than see the people separated from God. He would rather himself take on... What does Paul say? He says, I I wish that I myself were cursed for my fellow Israelites, that, that, that they might know God. That's the heart of the prophet. So longing for man and to be reconciled to their God that they themselves are willing to die. So the goal of the prophets was one of reconciliation. And the way they did, the way they called the people to be reconciled with God, there was a certain prophetic formula that they all followed. The way they were to be reconciled with God was they called the people to repentance. And the way it went was like this. You have sinned against a holy God, and you are now under his judgment. But God is merciful and gracious. And if you repent, who knows? Who knows? Perhaps he will show mercy on you and relent and not send the judgment he has promised. That was the generic formula that's repeated by the prophets over and over through the Old Testament. So there was this general formula of judgment is coming, Because you've sinned, God is gracious. If you repent, who knows? Maybe he will relent. But the prophets, that was their general formula, but they were very specific also about the sins of the people. The prophets accused Israel, brought righteous accusations against Israel for three sins. The first and primary sin was the sin of idolatry. Now, back then, idolatry often involved bowing down to an idol kind of thing, which, you know, we don't do today. But it involved more than simply bowing down to idols then, and it involves more than bowing down to idols now. The essence of idolatry is not simply breaking God's commands. The essence of idolatry is looking to something other than God for your life. Looking for money to give you life. Looking for people's approval to give you life. Saying that I need these, these are the things that give me life. Looking to comfort to give me life. Looking to safety to give me life. Looking to entertainment or distraction to give me life. 
Those can be idols if we look to them for life. And so the call to the people was to repent of idolatry. And the essence of idolatry, as I've said, was not simply breaking commandments. It was breaking faith. It was being unfaithful. You see, the story arc of the Old Testament is God rescuing his bride from captivity in Egypt, ransoming her, purchasing her out of Egypt, delivering her out of Egypt, and then bringing her to a pleasant place where he was to live with her and she with him and to enjoy communion and intimacy together. But instead of looking to God as their husband and provider, Israel went, in the words of the prophet, went whoring. The primary, the primary metaphor that the prophets use for idolatry in the Old Testament is adultery. Let me, uh, let me read to you from Ezekiel chapter 16. I'm trying to figure out whether I should warn you about this or not. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 32. Hear the word of the Lord. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. Every prostitute receives a fee, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, you are the opposite of others. No one runs after you for favors. You are the very opposite, for you give payment and none is given to you. Therefore, you prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says, because you poured out your wealth and exposed your nakedness and your promiscuity with your lovers, and because of all your detestable idols, and because you gave them your children's blood. Therefore, I'm going to gather all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them against you from all around and will strip you in front of them, and they will see your nakedness. I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring upon you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. Then I will hand you over to your lovers and they will tear you down, your, tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you naked and bare. They will bring a mob against you and will stone you and hack you to pieces with their swords. They will burn down your houses and inflict punishment on you in the sight of many women. I will put a stop to your prostitution." and you will no longer pay your lovers. Then my wrath against you will subside, and my jealous anger will turn away from you. I will be calm and no longer angry. Wow. Wow. This is your God, by the way, speaking. (laughs) This is the God you worship speaking. But you see... I thought the prophets were about reconciliation. I don't hear much reconciliation here. I see both barrels just blasting out. How can this be about reconciliation? You see, there is an essential part to reconciliation that sometimes we forget. The reconciliation of the Old Testament was not some sloppy, sentimental reconciliation. Required for reconciliation was repentance. Deep and profound and real repentance. Without repentance, there was no reconciliation. 
And repentance does not come without the conviction of sin and judgment. And so the prophets lead with the conviction of sin and judgment. Why? Because they want repentance and reconciliation, but they realize you can't get there from here without. You will not repent unless there is a conviction of guilt and judgment. And so in their tender mercy, in their severe mercy, they proclaim the word of the Lord's judgment with the hope, with the prayer, with the earnest tears that the people will repent and find mercy. The root sin that the prophets came to Israel about was the sin of idolatry, of looking to something other than God for life. But there were two other sins that the prophets brought to the fore as well. And both of these sins were birthed out of idolatry. They were, if you will, the idolatry was the root and these other two sins were the fruit. You see, when we look to something other than God for life, that ends up corrupting our relationship with God and corrupting our relationship with others. When we look to something other than God for life, what we will end up doing is manipulating God to get those things we want and manipulating and oppressing others to get those things we want. Those are the two fruit sins they are called. Manipulating God, theologians give the term religious formalism. That is, you're going through the motions to try and please God so you can get what you really want. You don't want God. The analogy I think that works is, well, think of this. If, if a woman marries a man because she loves him, and she finds pleasure in pleasing him. She finds her delight in pleasing him. We call that woman a good wife, right? She loves him, she delights to please him, and she, because she longs for his pleasure, she longs for his delight that pleases her heart. Now suppose a woman marries a man not because she has any desire for him, but because she wants his money. What do we call her? A gold digger, right? Now, if you look at the behavior of these two women, they may do the exact same thing. They're both about pleasing their husband, but for very different reasons. One, because she loves her husband, and she loves to be with him, and she loves to see his smile. And the other, because she loves her husband's money, and she knows that's how to get it. That's religious formalism manipulating God, not because we love him, but because we want his money. We love something more than we love God, and so God becomes a means to an end. And we go through all the motions in order to get the things that our idolatrous hearts long for. But idolatry corrupts our relationship with our fellow men as well. You see, if we love something more than God and love something more than others, then not only will we manipulate God to get those things, but we will manipulate others and we will oppress others to get those things as well. If it's money, then people will become simply a means to money and we will do whatever it takes to get that cash. The reason idolatry corrupts our relationship with God and with man, there are many reasons, but one of the reasons is because idolatry brings with it an intrinsic scarcity mentality. Let me, let me show you what I mean from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. 
Has a nation ever changed its God? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now think of it. If the source of your water, if, if your water source is this, this gushing spring that runs 24-7, whether you're there or not, it's producing thousands of gallons an hour, just pouring out, no matter what. There's this overabundance of water. That's your water supply. Someone comes to your house, and they ask you for water. Sure. You can have, I got plenty more where this came from. Have at it. Okay, the next day, they come to you for more water. Okay. No issue there. The next day, they come with these jars of water. They want more water. They say, hey, listen. You say to them, hey, listen, let me, take, let me show you something. Let me show you where this spring is. You can fill up all the jugs you want. There is an abundance of water here. Let me show you where my water supply is. I'd be delighted to do that. By the way, it's the best water you've ever tasted. It's cool, and it's crisp, and it's refreshing, and it's just it's life-giving water. Now suppose that you're, you, you, you just you don't want to have to keep going to that spring. You know, you want to be your own man, independent, and that kind of stuff. <laughs> so you say, ah, I know, I'm going to dig this big hole in the ground, and then I'm going to fill it up with water, and then I'm not going to need the spring anymore. I'm going to retire from having to go to the spring. Only you don't realize your cistern is in a recession, and it's leaking. And, and there's less and less water there every day. But that's the water you need for life. And you've worked so hard to put that water in that cistern. And now somebody comes to your door and says, hey, can I have some water? Well, you might muster up some generosity and say, okay, you can have some water. Well, when they come the next day, what's going to happen? Well, maybe you might be able to muster up enough generosity, but you're like, you know, hey, you know, this water's not free. I worked hard for this water. I worked hard to dig this hole, and this water's leaking, you know. You need to, well, the next day they show up with these jugs wanting to fill them with your water, and you're like, no, listen, I got to have my boundaries, you know? <laughs> you're not getting any more of my water. If you want water, you go dig your own cistern, you go get your own water, but do not touch, come on, can I, no, stay away from my water. I worked hard for that water, that's my water. Listen, if you dig a cistern and you fill it with water, you may not need the spring anymore, but you're going to need guns and ammo to protect your, your water. The, there is a scarcity mentality that comes with idolatry. Because idolatry is not the source of anything. Idolatry is kind of like the slots. It, in the slot machines, they're exciting, they're addictive. They give some great payouts. But they only give you back a portion of what they have stolen from you and stolen from others. Idols are not the source of anything. They can be exciting. They can be addictive. And there can be some incredibly, you know, some pretty incredible payouts. But they only give you what they have already stolen from you and stolen from others. And if you play them long enough, you will end up broke. 
because they are not the source of anything. And they bring with them this scarcity mentality. We uh, are no longer here because we moved to the country. Um, no longer in Altamont because we moved to the country. Uh, and and we've, we've, got some, we've got some great neighbors. Um, they're, they're really kind, really generous. We just, we just love being there. And it's, it's amazing. They get super generous when okra season is in full bloom. I mean, they're like, Tim, we bought you a, 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 you know, a, this, this bucket of okra. And like, hey, Mike just gave us two bags of okra. We're like, we're like topped off, man. No, no, please, please take the okra, please. No fooling. Except for yesterday, I think every day last week, I had okra or okra leftovers every single day. We have frozen okra in our freezer. We have pickled okra in our fridge. Hot pickled okra, I've yet to taste that, but one of the neighbors gave us that. Hot pickled okra. The, the point is, is when you realize you have an abundance, it's easy to be generous. When the prophets preach against this oppressive type of manipulation of others, they, they are not calling the people to be more generous. They are calling the people to repent of their idols and find the superabundance of the goodness of the grace of God so that they can be free to say, have some okra. <laughs> We've got tons of it. Where it's not a labor anymore. Okay, I've thoroughly lost my place. The two primary sins that are born out of idolatry are religious formalism, manipulating God to give us what we think we need for life, and social injustice, manipulating others to give, them, to give us what we think we need for life. So, let me give you kind of a, a sad example of how kind of idolatry produces both this religious formalism and this um, social injustice. So a couple weeks ago, Karen and I were on vacation in northwest Georgia, and we're driving, and I see this billboard, and it says, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. I'm like, that's a prophetic word. That's a prophetic word. And then I look again because I realize there's another line to that. There was another big line in red that was added to it. What it actually said was, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, even Democrats. <laughs> Do you see what they're doing? They're using God and using others to prove their own self-righteousness. To feed the idol of their self-righteousness. They're distorting the word of God and they're slandering their fellow man to say, I am superior. That is idolatry. It is religious formalism and it is social injustice. And it is to have no place in the Christian church. If I can do this without breaking down, let me read to you 
what real prophecy looks like. The words of a true prophet, moved by the Spirit of God. Hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah, chapter 58. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins, for day after day they seem eager to seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife. And in striking each other with wicked fists, you cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fasting I've chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets and dwellings. Do you want to make America great? This is God's recipe. Repent, taste the bounty of his mercy and grace and pour it out on the oppressed, the widows, the orphans. Then you will call and God will say, here I am. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard and your righteousness will go before you. In the night, your glory will break forth like the noonday sun because God will be with you. God is not a God of scarcity, but a God who cares and wants to be reconciled to all people and wants us to show them his love that abounds when we taste of the generosity of our good God. But that only comes if we are willing to repent and put down the idols that we hold, the things that we look to for life, The remedy for our sins, according to the prophets, is not merely to try harder, but to repent of our idolatry and fall on the grace of God. Well, with that, as our background to Old Testament prophecy, let's turn our attention, at last, to the book of Jonah. Let me read to you the first six verses. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. 
After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. The Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he laid down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. God comes to Jonah and calls him to go preach against Nineveh. And as we learned last week, the reason he hesitates to go to Nineveh is because Nineveh was a primary city of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrian Empire posed a very real political and military threat to Israel. And so Jonah refuses to go. But, but you say, God was calling him to preach against Nineveh. I mean, that, if you don't like Nineveh, that sounds like a good thing, right? Except Jonah knew that that preaching against Nineveh was for the purpose of convicting them of sin and judgment, that they might repent. And Jonah wanted none of that. Listen to what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Jonah, is, Jonah has gone through, he's preached against Nineveh. He's basically said, 40 days, you're all dead. That's his message. Not exactly the complete prophetic formula. He goes, 40 days, you're all dead. Then he goes up on a hill, hoping to have a front row seat for the destruction of Nineveh. He's just waiting. God, I can't wait for you to nuke him. I'm just here. <laughs> Bring it on. And he's, he's waiting to see if Nineveh's repentance is going to be sufficient to spare them from the judgment of God that God has promised. And when he realizes that God has accepted the repentance of Nineveh, listen to what he says. Chapter 4, verse 1. But Jonah was greatly disappointed. <sighs> They're reconciled to God. <clears throat> He's furious that they have become reconciled to God, and he becomes angry. And he prayed to the Lord, Oh, Lord, is not this why what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. One of our boys, when he was like six or seven, he got so angry at Karen. And he's just fuming. And you just see him there and his mind's spinning, trying to figure out the worst possible thing he could say to her. And he's like, you, you, you hamburger. <laughs> Thankfully, that was the extent of his <laughs> vulgar vocabulary. But... I mean, look at the accusations of Jonah. I'm so angry with God. You, God, you're compassionate, and you're merciful, and you're long-suffering, and you're forgiving. I can't stand you. <laughs> I mean, I, he is so blinded by his idolatry that he cannot see the beauty of God's mercy when it is right in front of him. Idolatry blinds us to the beauty and the goodness of God. Jonah is an idolater. He is, an idol he, he is holding fast to his political safety and his military safety and his national safety. He values that above God. 
He wants to protect that. And so in an attempt to protect his idols, he does something really stupid. He tries to run from God. Now in verse 9, Jonah says that he believes that his God is the God of, the, of, the God of heaven. Okay, And yet here, Jonah is trying to run from the God of heaven in, in order to protect his idols. Uh, here, here's the thing. When we hold to idols, and those idols are threatened, we will say and do some very stupid things in order to protect our idols. We will make up stories, we will do all sorts of things to protect our idols. And what Jonah didn't, what, Jonah's issue was not that he was thick-skulled. Jonah knew that God was the God of heaven. Jonah knew he couldn't run from God. Jonah's issue was not that he needed more knowledge. Jonah's issue was not that he was thick-skulled. Jonah's issue was that he was hard-hearted. The ignorance in our lives and the ignorance in our culture is not caused because of some intellectual deficit. It is caused because of our hard-heartedness and our desire to protect our own idols. And the remedy is not education. The remedy is repentance. returning again to the bounty of God and the goodness of God to be set free from this protectionistic position. And so Jonah engages in a fool's errand and he runs from the God of heaven. And, and no surprise, God pursues him. God pursues him with an impending judgment. And there's this huge storm that comes up on the sea. This storm is so big that the sailors, these sea-hardened sailors, they recognize that this is no ordinary storm. And in it, later in the chapter, they, they cast lots to see whose fault this was because they realized this is a judgment from God. And these sailors, these pagan sailors, are doing their very best to repent. I mean, they had this cargo on board. They were looking to that cargo to give them life, right? That was going to be their payout. That was going to be their money. That was going to bring comfort. That was going to bring material supplies. That was going to... But they realized that those things that they were looking to for life are worthless in this situation. Not only that, they realize those things are weighing them down. And so they throw overboard the very things they were looking to for life and they cry out to their gods. These pagan sailors are doing their very best to repent in any way they know how. And what is the prophet of God doing? He's down in the bottom of the boat, sleeping. He's in the Jonah is so exhausted from spending all his energy on protecting his idols, on protecting his stuff, that he has no energy left to proclaim the gospel to the sailors that God is a merciful God, and if they cry out to Yahweh, who knows? Maybe God will spare them. No, he's exhausted because he spent all his energy on his idols, on protecting his idols, on seeking his own safety. And he has no energy left to proclaim to those in peril around him the gospel of God, that God is merciful and longs to rescue them. 
Jonah's sleeping, and the sea captain comes to him and says this, verse 6. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Let me read that again. Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Do you hear it? That's the prophetic formula. You're under judgment. But get up. Call on God. Who knows? Maybe he will rescue us. The pagan sea captain is speaking the prophetic word to the prophet. It's interesting. In the book of Jonah, the prophetic formula is recited twice. Once here by the sea captain, and then in beautiful eloquency by the king of Nineveh. Both times the prophetic message is on the lips of pagans, not on the lips of Jonah. Well, when Jonah hears this prophetic word spoken to him, this call to repentance spoken to him, you know he's a prophet. He knows that this is a call to repent and to find mercy. And so, so he hears the prophetic word of God saying, repent and seek mercy. And what does he do? He says, throw me overboard. Throw me overboard. Wait, wait, but Joni, you of all people know that God longs for you to repent and be restored. Why do you want to be thrown overboard? When Jonah is up on the hill, after he's preached against Nineveh, he's up on the hill and he's waiting for them to be destroyed and he realizes they're not going to be destroyed. And he's angry with God. Remember how that passage ended? God, you're saving them. Just kill me. If you're going to save them, then take my life. I mean, Jonah is the absolute opposite of Moses. Moses says, God, I'm willing to die to see them reconciled. Jonah says, if they're reconciled, I want to die. Why? It's because when we engage in idolatry, when we make something other than God our lives... And that something is threatened. That something that we say, this is my life. This is what gives me life. When that is threatened, we have only two options. Two. Two options. One, destroy those who are threatening us. The other is lose our life. If an idol is what gives us life and that idol is being threatened, from ta- being threatened to be taken from us, there's two options. Kill the person, get rid of the person, eliminate the person, cut off the person who is threatening us, or else lose our life. So Jonah says, if you're not going to cut them off, then cut me off, because I, I can't live without my idols. God, if you don't cancel them, then cancel me. For some reason, Jonah doesn't get it that God is not a God of cancellation. God is a God of reconciliation. God is a God who says, I would rather die than see you not reconciled to me. God is a God who not only said that, God is a God who died that we might be reconciled to him. He did that. He was cut off 
so that we might not be. He was cut off so that we might become, receive the grace of God and become, like him, ministers of reconciliation. Calling people to find life in God, to cast aside the idols that weigh us down and tear us down and destroy us and find life in God. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone else in Christ, sorry, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be reconciled to God, that we might taste of the spring of living water, that we might be set free to be generous with the love and the mercy that we have received, that we might turn from our idols to something far greater. Christ has died to reconcile us to God. Jonah has one brief moment of temporary sanity when he is in the belly of the whale. And he says this, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. I have forfeited grace that could be mine. We have forfeited grace that could be ours by looking to things other than Christ for life. God's not calling us to try to be, to, to try harder to be more generous. He's calling us to the spring of living water, to his abundance, and in his abundance, generosity flows. I, I, I'm not sure exactly what that looks like for you. I'm not even sure what that looks like for me. But I'm sure that God knows what that looks like. And I am certain that if you cry out to your Savior and say, God, teach me repentance. Teach me faith. Teach me obedience. I, I don't want to forfeit the grace that's mine in Christ. I'm tired of being depleted by my idols Jesus, I want to return to you, the spring of living water. I want to taste life. In our confession and in our song this morning, we talked about how God is near the broken and the contrite in heart. I want to encourage us this morning to just take a minute in prayer to humble ourselves before God. There is more joy and grace for you in Jesus than you are right now experiencing because it is infinite. And so let's press in. Let's drink deep. Pray with me.
God, we have looked to other lovers. And we repent. Grant us godly sorrow. But as the confession says, don't leave us there. Show us the mercy that is ours in Christ. Show us the boundless love that we might, with a joy in our hearts, accuse you of being gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Open our eyes, God, to the beauty of who you are. Spirit of Christ, work in us. Teach us the love of the Father that we might cry out, Abba, Father, and be set free from the bondage of our idols, free to love you as our bridegroom and to love others in a way that brings you glory and us joy. God, we long for that. Work in us, we pray. Amen.